I've no idea how to introduce this, but uh, an idea came to me today. At first I thought I could do a YouTube video, but or a sequence of them, but then I thought I'd prefer just to read. So this is the book I've been writing for a long time now. I'm in the process of editing it, but I thought, why not read it and record it and upload it as a podcast? So here it is. Thanks for listening. Chapter 1 If you were watching me work, you might think I was asleep at my desk. Sometimes I would remain motionless for long enough that the sensor lights would turn off. Writing computer software, coding, doesn't involve much typing. Not like the way it's portrayed in movies. It's a slow, mostly silent war that we play in our minds with complexity and entropy. I needed to think deeply and quietly all day. Software grows old, it changes to suit new needs or as errors are fixed. Relatively few keystrokes are required to make the improvements needed or remedy the problems we find. And when an application exceeds a certain level of complexity, there are enough lines of code that every day we can be playing a new and different and difficult game with rules only slightly similar to the game we played yesterday. This is good and bad. Good because I'm off, not often bored, but bad because of the stress. Of the feeling that perhaps this bug you're working on can't be fixed, that is too complex and that you'll have to admit defeat. And it's frowned upon to swear or yell or beat the desk, so we're often full of stresses held in check by office habit and protocol. And some days I'd sit there at my desk fuming and distressed and even depressed, but I hadn't failed yet. I hadn't let the company down. I endured the numerous stomach upsets ranging from heartburn to diarrhea and the headaches. This is my occupation. I was meticulous and conscientious, and I've been sitting here doing my best in this job for roughly 10 or so years. I worked sitting in front of two large monitors, and instead of black and white like a book, the colours were green on black, mimicking an old-fashioned CRT terminal. This appealed to an aesthetic sensibility from my past. I'm very quiet and shy and without many friends. And you'd expect this, I imagine, on hearing that I'm a computer programmer. But of course this ar- archetype isn't universal. Isn't universal. This office I worked in was sprinkled with people who broke that mould. I, I fit in quite well, though, and there were a lot of people here very much like me. Sadly, perhaps. Introducing my work was almost enough to describe my whole life, since there wasn't much of my life other than work. I imagine that other people might introduce themselves by talking about their friends and family, wives or girlfriends. They might talk about the house they are renovating or building or the car they were doing up. Perhaps they'd talk about the travels they'd done or were planning. I had no friends outside of work. None of the work colleagues who I might call friends had ever visited me at my home. I never saw them at the weekend and and, and, and very few of their phone numbers were listed in my mobile phone. Sometimes during the working week, a group of colleagues and I would walk down the street for lunch, although I attended these outings only when they were organised to say goodbye to someone who was leaving the company. I'd had a few girlfriends, but these relationships would end fairly quickly, mainly because I found it difficult to relate to women, and my nervousness and inexperience seemed to unnerve or perhaps disappoint them, so that, the, so that they were soon gone again. I was a loner. In the office I was surrounded by people, but it was very quiet. 
Every now and then there'd be a conversation, but for the most part there was a silence. Occasionally you might hear a suppressed expletive. Expletive. But hardly ever any raised voices. There were neat desks and messy family photos and expensive headphones, thick books on various aspects of programming and weird food and sometimes very weird people. I mean, there were some seriously weird people working in this office. To be good at this job usually meant that there needed to be flexibility in, the, in your way of approaching problems. Lateral thinking, if you like. Being narrow-minded or constrained in your approach meant that your usefulness would have limits. I like to think there was, that we were scientists of bug fixing, calmly theorizing and only dealing in the facts revealed to us by the experiments we carried out in code within the debugger. <coughs> this cubicle was where I spent most of my life. My group, well the group I was a part of, occupied space in a section of the top floor. The building we worked in faced onto a park road would regularly walk to de-stress when it all got too much and or I had become stuck in my work. I believe that becoming stuck whilst programming was like writer's block. You might have followed a hunch regarding the cause of a failure as far as you could and then you realized you were wrong and now you'd run out of ideas. And you and you've exhausted yourself. The best thing to do just is just to get up and get outside and walk. Although sometimes this isn't enough, and the answer might only come to you in the morning, in an almost mystical fashion, as if your brain has worked on the problem all night while you slept. A workplace such as this, with so little conversation, might seem strange to many people. On some days, I and many of my colleagues would come in, acknowledge the people around us, and then sit barely moving except for breaks, for food and other necessities. We'd be there, silently working in front of the monitors all day, and then in the evening, with a quick goodbye, we'd leave. On many workdays, I would probably speak less than ten words in total. It was Friday, and I was escaping work at a reasonable hour for the first time in weeks. The past month had been extraordinarily busy, and I'd spent too many hours in the office. This mode wasn't unusual. There was a definite expectation in my workplace that you'd work however many hours in the day that were required to complete tasks on schedule. On the way down in the elevator, I caught my reflection in the mirrored panels. To my eyes, I'd look like a man who didn't smile often, a tired man. I usually had a five-day growth and hair that was kept short but messy on top, and the many silver strands of sign that I might soon go grey. I didn't think I was bad looking, I just didn't care so much how I looked. This evening there was still over an hour of daylight remaining as I left the building. I felt a warm, small thrill of exhilaration as I turned left and began walking down Fitzroy Street. The late afternoon light was just turning golden and the peculiar mix of elements that made St Kilda special were now shown at their best. I would take the long route home tonight, walking slowly to savour the experience. St Kilda was full of restaurants and I looked into many of them as I passed, thinking about how happy the groups and couples looked inside. I was tempted momentarily just to go into any one of them and eat a proper meal, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. <laughs> I knew that if I did, I'd sit there alone and feel as if I were being judged. I would feel uncomfortable and eventually I'd become distressed and any possible joint would die. I suppose I envied the people I saw in these restaurants, but I didn't admit it to myself. In some sense, I didn't feel as if I could be one of them. 
It seemed to me that there was too much of a gap from my world to their world. Logically, I knew that my ideas about these people were based almost completely on my imagination. I knew I was placing them all into a single category that obviously could not contain them all. I had no inkling about who I was looking at, why they were there, and I certainly had no clue what they could be discussing. Their smiles disturbed and saddened me. I kept on walking, managing the ingrained negativity I felt, trying to make sure I didn't drift off into any kind of sadness which would destroy the evening. I thought about how much I loved this suburb, even though sometimes its quirky hard and hard-edged nature would f could frighten me. St Kilda contained an eclectic bohemian group of locals. There were artists, designers, musicians, actors and many others. Often some of these people were strange enough to be confronting for me, but there wasn't enough to make me move away. All of these, all these weird people seemed to somehow bring a special kind of life to the place, or perhaps I felt that their life made up in some way for my own lack of it, as if I were part of the life there here by osmosis. The smells of the food were now making me hungry, and there was still a way to go before I was home. Fitzroy Street curved around to the left and became the Esplanade. St Gilda Bridge spread out beside me with a long pier stretching out into the water. Luna Park was behind and to the right of me now, and I could hear the rattling as the cars went around the old woman ro wooden roller coaster. I walked down the steps onto the footpath that led. That led along the edge of the sand, and walked and I walked and I walked slowly along. Behind me, the Melbourne city skyline twinkled in the distance, and the distant sounds of the surf lent trans transient beauty to the evening. It was about a 20 minute walk to home from here and as I walked the streets became much more ordinary. Elwood was filled with ugly cheap rectangular blocks of flats and it was ironic that in a place so new to, this, to sites where it seemed that the only view I had from my flat was of the adjacent, adjacent buildings. I, work, I walked past my own block of flats and into the Elwood shopping strip. The fish and chip shop was busy at this time of night, with a crowd of people standing around inside and others waiting in their cars out the front. As I entered the shop, the smell of hot fat and batter from the cooking was comforting. There was also something reassuring about their ubiquity of these places. The huge deep fryers, the large black hot plates, the exhaust, the overhead exhaust fans, the fish identification chart, an ancient ad for chicka rolls, the yellow or yellowing lighting on the walls, somewhat warped in places because of the vapour of the cooking and the blue lit electric fly killer up on the wall. And in this shop, as was common, it seemed that the whole family was working. The customers were separated into two groups that were difficult to tell apart because of the number of people in this shop. There were those waiting to order and those waiting for their food to be cooked. After a short wait I reached the counter and ordered and then moved to stand with my back against the rear wall so that I wouldn't be mistaken embarrassingly for someone who hadn't yet ordered. The customers, I imagined, were mostly parents on their way home from work, getting meals for easy family feasts. Most of the people in here seemed to be on good terms with the workers behind the counter. There were short bursts of conversation going on all the time, interspersed with the calm, efficient activities involved in the cooking. 
I hadn't really ever spoken to any of the family members behind the counter, even though I had been coming here irregularly for years now. They must have known my face. Perhaps it, was, perhaps it was strange to them that I never made much of an effort to chat or make any kind of comment connection. They might have thought me rude. I hope not, but I never had a strong desire to make conversation to show that I was not rude. I suppose I was disinterested. That was the main reason. But also I was not ab often able to think of something to say quickly enough to fit in the little bursts of your interaction. So I hardly said anything. I did try to be pol always be polite. I felt that was important. After about 15 minutes, I got a nod from the old guy behind the counter. I watched as my food was served onto square sheets of white paper, salted and then quickly and expertly wrapped into a tight bundle. The anticipation of the hot, fatty protein in carb-filled food made me want to run home. The heat coming through the wrapper was almost enough to burn me. The walk to my flat was fairly short. I forced myself not to hurry so as to prolong the anticipation of my evening and to try to stretch out this time when I was free and not at work. I had just reached that time of the evening. It had just reached that time, that time of the evening when the temperature had cooled to be almost perfect. Occasionally a slight, very faintly warm breeze came up, smelling of the nearby sea mixed with the faint aroma of warm gum trees. A perfect night to sit out on St Kilda Pier and eat my dinner as as the day ended, but I had a different plan. I reached my flat and walked in, noticing immediately the lack of fresh air and the faint smell of dust. I left the inner door open and also opened the bedroom and lounge room windows. The block of flats that I lived in was a very plain rectangular style made from light brown bricks. I guess it had probably been built in the 70s. There were three stories and I lived on the second. The stairs between the floors were all external. The front doors were all off, all off walkways that extended all along one side of the block. I presumed that all the flats were identical, although I'd never visited any of my neighbours to know this for sure. Underneath was a parking area. My fat was free rooms and it was in no way attractive. Some places looked better with age, but this place just looked old and drab. The flat had, pro had been maintained to a degree... It was livable, but to me it suffered because no one really cared about it. In an attempt to improve the look of the place, I never used the main lights, but instead I used a combination of table lamps and floor lamps. These lit the main room with islands of soft golden light. I spread the fish and chips out onto a large plate and sat down on my only armchair holding the plate to my chest with one hand, and with the remote control held in my other this was my special time, although not one I'd necessarily admit to my co-workers. I'd watch episodes of some TV show or maybe a favourite movie, something that made me feel a certain familiar way. Friends was probably my first choice. I'd always loved those scenes where the whole group was sitting in the lounges, on the lounges in the coffee shop, talking easily and perfectly comfortable with each other. In a very real sense, these characters were my friends, my perfect friends. I craved a life lived that way. Me, as part of a cohesive group held closely together by friendship and trust and love, I guess, but I didn't know. At the same time, I knew that I would find it all find all that uncomfortable. I knew friends wasn't real. People weren't written or planned. I realised that you had to accept them as they were, and I found it difficult to do this, preferring to keep them at a distance. 
Certainly, along with the characters from perhaps a half dozen other similar American series, these actors were the only visitors I ever had to my flat. I preferred to keep real people at a reasonable distance. This way I didn't have to endure the annoyance of random, unscripted strangers. Tonight, however, I wanted to watch Notting Hill again. Probably my favourite movie, and again, like Friends, the main characters in this movie formed a similar kind of group. It was definitely a movie about friends, but it was the songs, I think, that kept me re-watching Notting Hill. There's She, of course, which plays in the opening credits, and then two others. You've got Away and then and When You Say Nothing At All. I'd often sing along to these songs, replaying sections of the movie just so that I could sing again. Singing was the oddest, most incongruous, incongruous thing in my life. No one at work knew that I liked to sing. I felt certain no one would believe it. There was nothing that they saw in me that they could connect to such an activity. I had once taken singing lessons so I could sing. At least I was able to sing at one time. The lessons were so long ago now that I didn't remember exactly how long I had taken lessons for. It might have been one or two years, but I had no idea. Looking back, it seemed as if it was a dream. I couldn't remember how I'd started or how I'd summoned up the courage to begin. I vaguely remembered the first lesson where I had to sing something in front of a teacher. Somehow I'd overcome what was surely one of the most, my worst fears. I remembered going regularly to the singing lessons on a weekday morning and then afterwards I would have lunch in one of a number of cafes in Glen Ferry. I did recall that one of the cafes had Greek food and I always felt that the young woman who worked there was attracted to me. I never found out that out for sure. Perhaps she was just being friendly. I don't remember ever speaking to her except to order food. After lunch, I'd then head off to work for the afternoon. The ability to sing is a difficult thing to comprehend for a logical person like myself. The mechanics of it, the ways that you can get your voice to pitch correctly even when you need to transpose on the fly seems impossible. And yet it had come to me naturally, almost miraculously. I was often laid bare by singing, reduced for a few moments to a simple response, a simple need. It would be a weekend and I'd be sitting in some cafe in a shopping centre, reading and having breakfast. Some song would come over the PA and in my thoughts I would escape. I'd lose myself in a dream. I would be walking through the dimly lit area underneath the stage. It was mostly dark except for indicator lights and displays from the racked audio equipment and scattered fingers of light from the stage lights that shone through cracks in the flooring above me. I picked my way carefully through the scaffold structure that held the stage, stepping carefully over the cables that were taped to the floor in seemingly random arrangements, making my way to the stairs that led upwards. The noise of the crowd was causing my adrenaline to spike. I turned a corner and the stairs were there in front of me, bathed in stage light. I stepped onto them, making my way up into the light from a spotlight that was aimed at me. It was I was the last band member out, and as I walked up onto the stage, the crowd roared and screamed. I approached the microphone stand. The light dimmed as I took the microphone in my hand. There was a normal shock of nervousness, and I waited while it passed. Our drummer started up, and then I was singing. I felt totally at ease. There was no fear, and the singing was effortless. It was only an immense feeling of joy. I had no idea who the other band members were. I only knew that I was the singer and that I should stand at the front under the spotlight. I could almost feel the sweat underneath my shirt. The song would end. I'd acknowledge the crowd. But then the song on the PA would end. The dream would fade and I'd try to start reading again. But my interest in the book would be gone. 
unable to continue, I'd finished breakfast. Get up and start to walk back to my car. As I walked, I'd try to put myself back into the dream, but I would fail without that particular song that had been responsible for its creation. The euphoric feelings from the dream would fade and all I'd be left with was a feeling of sadness. I would also feel a little guilty for letting myself yet again dream such a futile dream. I could barely manage to speak to a stranger and I disliked even being noticed in public. Why did I imagine I'd ever enjoy or ever be, even be capable of singing in front of a crowd of strangers? Notting Hill ended. I was left unsatisfied, flat and unenthused. I supposed I'd watched it enough times that the life had gone out of the movie. I thought about going to bed, but I'd eaten too much, and I knew that without walking I would never sleep. In a few minutes I had put on an old worn coat, and I was walking through the streets of Elwood. As I walked, I tried for a while to work out something special to do on the weekend. There were jobs to do, of course. I would need to do the laundry at some point. I, I should wash the car and perhaps even tidy the flat. As usual, on a Sunday, I would go into the city and have lunch at the Spaghetti Theatre, sitting by myself reading a book and trying to some, trying sometimes successfully to feel as if I belonged there. I could think of nothing else I wanted to do or even anywhere I knew I felt like seeing. I hated this feeling, this inability to decide what to do, and sometimes I would just sit on my bed in a state that felt like being tied down. My decision felt like pain and the guilty feelings about wasting time would overwhelm me. And it wasn't as if there was n there were nothing interesting to do. In my flat and on my computer were the pieces and files making up the beginnings of half a dozen projects, started but never finished. I knew instead that my weekend would involve lots of walking, which was okay, but when Monday morning came, there would be the, that vague feeling of regret and the worry that I was wasting my life, that I was doomed endlessly to endlessly repeat myself out of fear. If I looked at my situation dispassionately, I could see that there was a measure of avoidance here. What I think I really wanted to do was to meet someone, a woman, and all my projects, which I hardly ever worked on, and my cleaning and my eating out and reading were tactics to distract me from my loneliness and pointlessness. I procrastinated whenever I felt the fear of doing anything that might change my situation. I suffered badly from loneliness, I must admit, but I couldn't see what I needed to do to change my circumstances and find a partner. And when I imagined explaining the way I lived to a woman, I became filled with embarrassment and shame. Who would want to share this with me? So although it was clear I needed to get some kind of a life, my fears always held me back. So for years this was how my life had been. I could easily imagine being told that I was lucky, that I had nothing to complain about. After all, I'm well off. And I have a place to live and food to eat. I have interesting work to do. And, and when I was away from work, there, was, there were no responsibilities. And it's been my choice not to use the free time for any... And it's been my choice not to use the free time for anything fulfilling. And although I couldn't argue with any of this, I still felt powerless, I still felt powerless to make a change. I felt overwhelmed by the difficulty of the task of doing something different. These thoughts filled me with dread there was also the fear that if I did something that, that I would be noticed and found out as an imposter in life, people would know what I was hiding f that what I was hiding from them, that I was almost living in my shame beside life and not in it. Okay, I think that's as, almost as much as I can do this evening. My voice is just about ready to give up, I think. 
Um, I hope someone listens to this. Um, I would like to have comments about what it's like, what people like think of it. I mean, the beginning parts of this book, of my book, it's a bit sad. It gets better. Um, I think, though, I think it's about a hundred and something thousand words. Um, so it takes will take a while to get to the parts that are more um, uplifting. Uh, in any case, thanks for listening.